Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film today's course. We are rolling out and rolling into the station with our Shocktober 7 marathon with a... a yes, you must do that. Um, you're contractually obligated, I suppose, uh, to talk about the Mother's Trilogy, uh, which is... Um, something we're going to talk about and uh, that's all i want to say at this point let's go ahead and identify these disembodied voices speaking to your brain who are you to my left i am arthur gordon and bad luck isn't brought by broken mirrors true true facts to my right sir who are you my name is dalton stewart and it's nice that we're watching uh um, we're gonna get to be mad at dustin for a change yes um i'm also mad at dustin i am dustin and i want to ask you a strange question how strange is what you're supposed to say if you remember the dialogue from the movie. The strange question is, why did we watch these movies? Uh, but I like the first two quite a bit still. And we'll talk about the third one, I guess. <laughs> so, in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Owner cast for the very first time, we want to warn you of a couple things. This is not a review show. Oh, no, it is an analysis show. And that means we're going to spoil things like plots, except for this movie doesn't, or these movies don't really have them, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, we're going to avoid spoilerific spoiler ridges um, at the outset, though. So, this is what it's going to look like synopsis from The Voice to Cinema, our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews of the trilogy. We're going to play a game which has some minor spoiling uh, going on in films uh, of this nature and its orbit and then we'll get down to our analyses so uh, there you go with all of that without any further ado Mr. Arthur Gordon voice the cinema let's hear a synopsis of the Mothers trilogy The Three Mothers is a trilogy of supernatural horror films by Dario Argento it consists of Suspiria Inferno and the Mother of Tears each film deals with one of the titular mothers a triumvirate of ancient and evil witches whose powerful magic allows them to manipulate world events on a global scale. Damn, that's a good synopsis. Where did that come from? Wikipedia. Oh, thanks, Wikipedia. Way yeah. to go, Wikipedia. Coming in clutch. Um, so, there you go. Let's go ahead and give a review of the trilogy. And uh, so, yeah, as such as it is a trilogy, um, and we can discuss more of that in a moment. Dalton Stewart, I go to you first. Um, do you like these and why? I was really excited to, to watch these, uh, especially Suspiria. I mean, its its reputation certainly precedes it, obviously. Uh, a week from when we're recording, or, well, two weeks from when we're recording, a week from when you're going to hear it. Um, Luca, don't know how to say his last name, not going to try, because I'm, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself. But uh, he's got his Suspiria remake coming out, uh, so it's a hot time to talk about it, uh, just over the 40th anniversary of the film. So it was as good a time as any to finally get around to Suspiria, and I like getting around to seeing things I haven't seen for the purposes of this show. Uh, so I was really excited to watch this Suspiria, um, and I had the pleasure of watching it with Dustin and uh, with Dr. Fiance. Uh, it was a great time, uh, and then I, I know uh, quite a few people who hold uh, Inferno in equally high regard, including Dustin, so we watched that next. Also very exciting, and then we watched uh, The Mother of Tears, and uh, I'm sorry. that's a fucking train wreck of a movie, and we'll talk more about why later. I'm I don't, sorry. I don't want to spend too much time dogging on that movie right now, because I want to talk about how great Suspiria is. Uh, first of all, the score from Goblin is just amazing. It is so good. It it really is truly spectacular. I can see why it's such a big... People are talking a lot about this Tom York score for the new one. Um, and I can see why so much time is being spent talking about how good is the score for the new one going to be. Because I feel like that score from Goblin that Dario Gento also helped compose 
is a huge part of what makes Suspiria so effective. Uh, other than that, obviously, is the production design, which, I mean, th- this movie is production design within an inch of its life. Uh, those two things are, are the pillars that hold up this otherwise kind of weird and nonsensical film. Uh, but it's kind of part of its charm. It's got this melodramatic dialogue. Uh, it's got this pretty good... Uh, at best, but sometimes not great dubbing uh, because all of the sound was recorded after the fact, so it's all fully work and voiceover, or um, rather um, looping, uh, that they do. Um, it's all ADR'd, uh, which I, it kind of helps the film, honestly. It helps the film have this weird, fever-dreamy state. And again, I think that's really the strength of Suspiria, is it starts that from go, and it maintains... I mean, the first shot of the film has um, our, our lead... Um, oh my god, I forget the lead character's name. Susie Banyan. Susie Banyan exiting uh, the uh, the airport, and it's just ba- the gate, the terminal gate, is just bathed in red light, and that's how we start the movie, and it just manages to maintain that weirdness throughout. Um, it, it's a hoot. Uh, it, it is really great. I, I'm not wild about the climax of the film. Uh, I don't I th- don't think it's nearly as strong as everything that precedes it. But it, it is just something to behold. And Inferno is also quite good. I think its score is less good. Uh, there are a couple of pieces of music in, in Inferno that really are good. Uh, but it, it doesn't quite stand out in the ways that Suspiria does. But I think a large part of what Inferno has going for it uh, is, again, production design. And it, it's more restrained than in Suspiria. Um, they, they kind of manage to thread this needle that feels like... Uh, the characters, each character that kind of intersects with a, the supernatural events in Inferno as they intersect with those spooky things, the production design that they're walking through gets weirder. So they, they, it manages to convey this like idea that as they f- are falling into these dark worlds and dark secrets, the world around them changes and becomes darker and more dreamlike. And I think it's really cool, especially the, the, a lot of the sets in the uh, apartment building uh, that is kind of the main location for Inferno. Some of those sets are just really spectacular. Um, and then, yeah, uh, Mother of Tears looks like uh, uh, an episode of Law and & Order, and that that's unfortunate. That's being nice. Yeah, look, I'm going to be honest. There's episodes of Law & Order that look better than that movie. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try my best to not just talk shit on that movie the entire time, but it is very bad. Uh, it's needlessly exploitative and needlessly gross um, and just it doesn't care about any of its characters. Uh, and that's what I will say about Inferno and Suspiria. Every time somebody eats it in that movie, y- you're you're bummed out about it. It does a pretty good job of introducing characters you become interested in uh, and attach emotion to very quickly. And um, by the time uh, Dario's in his 70s, it just seems like he doesn't, he just wants to, you know, spend all his money on gore effects instead of production design, and it does not suit him well. Um, and I get it, you know, I mean, he, he's been working on a shoestring budget for a long time, and I think Mother of Tears had a pretty good one. And he was like, well, let's get a lot of prop heads. And just, I don't care, man. Like, that's not what we like about your movies. And I, I it seems to me a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what's interesting about his art when uh, you get to Mother of Tears. But, uh, yeah, Inferno and Suspiria are as good as you've heard. Uh, and I, I know Inferno's a little less heralded than Suspiria, but I think people in the know uh, wisely touted it as being really good. And uh, I would agree. I think both of the first two films in the, in the Three Mothers trilogy are, 
are really something special. And uh, if you are into horror and you've been putting off Suspiria because you you know you don't think it's for you or you're just like ah, I don't know I've heard a lot of weird stuff about those seventies Italian horror films, give it a go. I I, th- I really think there there's something just so weird about Suspiria that you can't not like it uh, because it is certainly one of a kind. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you think of the trilogy? Let's hear your thumbs up, thumbs down review. Um, I am one of those people that put off uh, Suspiria for a long time because it is one of those uh, 70s Italian horror films, and I wasn't sure what to expect. And you I watched did. that with me, too, didn't I you? I did. Oh, yeah. I was going to get to that, so thanks for ruining the plot. Sorry. Um, but yeah, Dustin uh, forced me uh, to watch this film with him. And I was very glad that I did. I thought it was uh, super effective. I think it's spoopy and gorgeous to look at. It is a sight to behold. Um, and I, I think I can kind of talk about Inferno and and uh, uh, Suspiria um, pretty similarly. I mean, I, I feel like they both have a lot of the same uh, pros and cons going for them. Uh, you know, the set design, the production design is very effective. They look gorgeous. Uh, those two buildings look like they were constructed by the same guy, which is the narrative that we've got in yeah. this film. Varelli. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, the second one, Inferno, really builds on this mythos that's not really established in the first one, really does get established in Inferno that this is a trilogy type of thing. Um, there's references, I think, to the other mothers in Suspiria, but it's not really doesn't seem like really part of the plot like we come to find out in the other movies um but i i I think uh this kind of establishment of this kind of dreamlike world with the the dubbing and the um visuals and the lighting and all that stuff works very well i think he does a great job of setting up this kind of feeling of paranoia very very quickly in suspiria like you said you referenced that shot that it starts with and it is just Falls to the wall as soon as that film starts. When they're in that cab driving through the forest, we see the girl running. It's all very effective. Yeah, um, the lighting of that scene is so weird too. Like it's got a spotlight shining down on her from above the trees. It's really cool. Yeah, Arthur, I love that moment. Yeah, and, and, and so I, I appreciate all of that form and artistry that goes into those uh, different elements. You know, his set design, his production design, the lighting, that goblin score is incredible. Mm. Um, and it, it's just highlights. It all works so well together. And it's almost a perfect storm film. Unless you've seen some of the other stuff, you know, if you've seen Inferno, it, he does it again. And it, to, I think a lot of great effect. I actually kind of like Inferno, I think a little more. Um, I, if I were to sit down and be like, I think I want to watch a, um, Argento movie. I'd probably pick Inferno over Suspiria. You know what? I would probably agree with that. I think Suspiria moves a little bit better. I think it's more effectively paced, and I think that's just because of the economy of of locations and characters. There's just less people that it has to juggle. But yeah, Inferno's just really weird. It, it, it Almost weirder than Suspiria in some ways because it's a little bit more grounded. I, I love Inferno. We get that kind of opening sequence where she goes down into the cellar and then into yes. the water. It's very effective. It works so well. Um, and I think the movie just kind of carries that. I, I like the way the characters are kind of intertwined and we go in and out of these stories. I It's it's a very interesting way to set up uh, your character pathways because it's not something you really see the way he plays that out through that film. Um, and so the person we thought was the lead doesn't become the lead and we got another lead and it it actually kind of works for me. 
Um, that being said, when we do get to Mother Tears, it is 30 years later. He does that in 2007. It's 30 years after Suspiria. And it's it, it doesn't seem like it's directed by the same guy at all. We don't have uh, the production design. We don't have that set design. You know, we really should have had a third building uh, that looks like the other two. And we don't have that. The other thing that Argento does so well in Suspiria and in Inferno is both of these films are set in locales that aren't isolated. New York's not an isolated city. There's you know, millions of people in very small uh, area. But that film makes you feel like it's in the middle of nowhere, the way he puts it all together. And the same with Suspiria. Um, in Suspiria, we know that the, the, the Dance Academy is not far from like the B- BMW Tower in Germany and some other spots of obvious populace. Yeah, Freiburg's like a big place. Yeah, yeah Freiburg's not a small town and at all. He makes it feel so hopeless and alone. Yeah, it, he makes it feel like as soon as you walk in the home of one of these uh, three mothers, like you've entered some sort of like pocket dimension yeah. where the rest of the world cannot get to you to help you. And the Mother of Tears just doesn't do that. We we have a lot of kind of like daytime shots and outside external type of stuff where they're out in crowds and out in cities and there's a the whole train sequence with a lot of people. Um, so it, it feels like a total shift uh like a 180 like another director came in and and took over and did this like kind of argento style film and it never quite clicks um and like dalton said it's very excessive when it doesn't need to be it's a lot of it feels like shock for shock's sake and it 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 looks like a director who's just fallen off um and i'd heard the the latter half of argento's career was not uh, nearly as strong as as the beginning stages, and I think Mother of Tears is a defining example of uh, a director who has just completely fallen off from his uh, vision and who is completely out of touch with his work. And so it's you know, as a trilogy, it mostly works, but I think you could just stick to the first two and be okay, kind of like The Godfather, or, you know, something like that. Uh, absolutely, Arthur, and that's exactly how I feel. Now, I came into this being a huge fan of Inferno and Suspiria uh, in that order. I liked Inferno, like you guys, uh, quite a bit better. Not quite a bit better, a bit better than I do Suspiria. I think Suspiria is great. I love how just designed it is, the use of that velvet wallpaper, the ways in which uh, those uh, geometric figures are used to design the wall areas you know, of different er- uh, parts of the uh, either the dance school itself or the apartment complexes uh, that Susie and others visit throughout the course of the film. That great, great uh, pool scene is just, you know, all that stuff is just really, really interesting, and I love all of the geometricness to it, but I really like the the way in which light becomes a way of... uh, you know, just sort of coloring what you do in Inferno. And that the the palette is a little bit more limited in Inferno. I like that as well. I like that it's basically a red-blue palette, uh, kind of a purplish kind of tone overall throughout. You can see that in that skull poster uh, that is used for it. Uh, so I, I really, really love those stories. I, I, I love the way in which they're just experiences. We've talked about the sonic nature of Goblin soundtrack. Uh, there are some musical cues that are a little stranger at times in in uh, Inferno, but I do love that last bit with the opera singer singing Suspiria and the names of the various mothers and and the bump bump da 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 da. It, it it's silly and fun and bombastic, and I like that about it at the end 
of uh, that particular film. I like how they all end in fire. I wish it was a bit more climactic. I do think sometimes uh, Argento tends to stumble a little bit at the end. But that being said, uh, lots and lots of fun. Now, coming in, though, I had never seen Mother of Tears. I just hadn't gotten around to it. I had had it um, downloaded for a long, long time and owned a digital copy of the film. But I just never got there. Just Okay, someday at some point I will finally sit down and watch this movie. But no, just never, ever had, you know, finally done the thing. And so when I sat down with uh, Dr. Girlfriend and Dalton. Dr. Fiance. Dr. Fiance. Uh, that's right. And she's no longer Dr. Girlfriend. Correct. That's correct. Um, as I sat down with them to watch the movies, I had a blast sitting through and going, yeah, this is a thing. This movie's insane. And look at the color. Look at the lighting. Look at the uh, way in which narrative doesn't matter in so much as it, you want to narrate an experience. You just want to assault your audience with your cinema. I love all of that. And then we watched Mother of Tears. And I think the Godfather comparison is appropriate, but not even good enough to describe how much worse Mother of Tears is. Because... Again, Suspiria and Inferno are these massively influentially, uh, massively important films, massively just artistic and thoughtful in the way that they are constructed. Again, not narratively, but visually, sonically, how they're constructed. And then you have, and we're going to do another thing, and um, I don't know, I just hate everyone. I hate women. I hate animals. I hate babies. Um, let's make sure you see how much I hate women, animals, and babies throughout this film, and just... Just a cruel, sort of vicious kind of filmmaking. Vicious in a way like Toby Hooper's uh, Chainsaw Massacre might be, that it hates its audience, but it it's not even as good or as thoughtful as that. It's it's just, I, I just don't like anything, and I my cranky vitriol is all that you see as a director in that. And so I was really disappointed. And so like with The Godfather, you know, I pretend like the third part doesn't exist. Yes, but there is a way in which the third part is the third part, dissatisfying but it still feels like it's of a piece it does feel like a coppola movie it does feel like a godfather sequel the dots are connected all that sort of stuff is going on there with this one i'm just like and another thing happened no really we, we need to pretend like it doesn't exist the third film of the mother's trilogy is rob zombie's lords of salem really that's what you have to do you have to just say that's the third film and what's that okay never mind i i get what you're saying yeah we yeah lords of salem is the is the third film of the trilogy? Damn, yeah, that's yeah, I would agree with that a hundred percent. If you do that, then you've had a good time. But otherwise, this movie just you, really, dear listener, don't watch it. I have to say to my dear co-hosts and to Doctor Fiance, I am sorry. I am sorry. I am sorry. I am sorry. Yes, I am. I have no apologies for making you watch *The Spirit*. I have no apologies for making you watch *Inferno*. But if you're listening to the show right now and you're like, "Okay, I never have gotten to the third film either," or "I've never gotten to the first two films," you need to watch *Inferno*. You need to watch *Inferno*, and, and you need to have you know that 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 experience in your life. You really don't don't do it. Don't watch Mother mm -hmm. of Tears. Uh, if you mm -hmm. need to make a third film work for you, somehow the three mothers were not actually dead. One of them's now D. Henderson, and go ahead and watch uh, Lords of Salem instead. There's, uh, there are things that I have seen that cannot be unseen. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry. I'm just, I, I, it's my fault. I, I missed the boat, and I have offended the gods, and I, I apologize. That's all I have to say. 
Uh, well, we're going to be looking for a new uh, main host of the series. Uh, yeah. uh, applications can be sent to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Dalton, is there anywhere else they can uh, send their applications to if they want to talk to us? Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, Dustin doesn't have access to that account, so just DM Arthur or I your credentials on why you should be the new primary host of the Good Trash Genrecast. Um, looking at you, Marcus Parks, I think you'd be great. Um <laughs> Yeah, any anybody out there? Uh yeah, let's get this let's get this old fuck off the show. <laughs> I just want to be buried with my box. Um my box that contains, you know, uh the sort of Yeah, uh, we're going to chain your laptop to it. The old rock and roll t-shirt. Yeah, that, you I, know, I I keep my sexy rock and roll t-shirts also in a box buried underground. Um oh boy. We did, we're going to talk about that shirt. Um at good underscore trash on Twitter. Uh, don't don't get on there if you're not already. Uh, I know we've been saying that a lot, and I think it bears repeating every single week. Social media is bad, and it's not good for us. It's like uh, all of us are smoking. And when I say all of us, I mean literally all 8 billion of us on the planet who are uh, allowing social media to hijack the course of human history. Um, yeah, it's the entire human species is uh, doing doing chain smoking, and it's not good for you. you got to stop. But, you know, if you're already on Twitter, it's at good underscore trash. We're on Facebook. Who cares? We're on Instagram. Who cares? Uh, if you really want to talk to us, at good underscore trash is going to be the primary way to do that. It would also mean a lot to us uh, if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Look, if you already listen to the show from time to time, but you haven't subscribed, you're just hurting yourself, honestly. Don't be wrong. It helps us when you subscribe, but uh, you don't need to go digging around in the feeds to figure out what's going on. Just subscribe. It's easier. And you don't have to be on Twitter for when we post the new show. Uh, just, just make your own life easier and avoid the hustle and bustle of social media. Boom, problem solved. I did you a favor today. I did you another favor by telling you you should not watch Mother of Tears. I think that's a favor we can all say we did for you today. Um, if uh, you do have long-form feedback, as Arthur already mentioned, that's going to be good. Uh, trash genrecast at gmail.com. Love those listener emails. They mean a lot to us. And finally, if you want to be a very special gold star listener who uh, is... Uh, impervious to wrongdoing okay i can't make that uh, claim for you but just give us money all right that, let's cut to the chase that's what i meant if you want to give us money you can go to patreon.com forward slash gtm lots of fun content there for you uh including uh, good trash nights and our our fired up content uh, we we have a lot of fun with the patreon content and uh if, if this show means a lot to you and you you think uh, we we deserve to have our hosting fees paid and you know have money in the budget to replace headphones when they start going out or, you know, I don't know, whatever. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash GTM if you think we deserve some dollars. Uh, that's it. That's all I got for you. Um, other than that, you know, be nice to each other. Uh, go tell somebody they mean something to you and, and, and then, you know, corner them and make them listen to you tell them about this show so I don't have to do it. All that to say, do as we say, not as we do. Yes, for sure, for sure. And I think with that, I think it's now time to play the game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game, if it don't mean nothing, what is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game. This week's game is inspired by the uh, Suspiria remake, in which we are going to pick directors that we would like to see do a reboot of a film or film franchise. That's right, directors, we'd like to see remake classic horror films brought to you by Suspiria 1977 and Suspiria 2018. Suspiria, 
It's a whole hell of a lot better than Mother of Tears. Yes, indeedy. So, moving right on into that, Arthur Gordon, I go to you first. What is your number first selection for film and director you'd like to see in a remake situation? I'm going to kick this one off because uh, I'm going to look at the Universal Classic films, and The Mummy has never really done anything for me. I don't think there's... It's an interesting concept, but it's never really been effectively pulled off. Uh, I like the Brendan Fraser one, but it's an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, it's an action adventure. It's not really a do-or-die horror film. I mean, it, it, it lends itself, you know, Bubba Hotep kind of does this comedy thing with it, but we've never had, like, this kind of terrifying horror film with this the mummy destroying things, right? And uh, I'd, I'd really like to see someone like Robert Eggers mm. uh, just take it to task. You know, he directed The Witch. He's got a couple things coming down the pike that look very exciting. Uh, but he does a lot of great stuff, much like uh, Argento with production design and set design. He comes out of that background, so he's got a great eye for those elements. And I think he could do a lot of fun stuff. You could make it a period piece if you wanted. You could do something modern, I think. But I think he has the right style and tone uh, to really develop a very tense, a very taut uh, horror film uh, revolving around a, a mummy, as, as silly as that sounds, but I, I, I think you could do the mummy thing where it comes back to life and becomes more mortal as it goes, you know, or it's just a mummy just walking the alleys at night murdering people, you know, however you want to do it. I, I just think it'd be really fun to see pulled off and pulled off well. Alrighty, thank you very much for that. What is your number first pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Uh, my number first pick is something of a cheat. We decided for the purposes of this game we were going to try to abstain from anything after 1990. Well, this film is from 1990, but I think it is, uh, it's time. I think this this is a film that is worth a remake, and that is Jacob's Ladder uh, uh. starring Tim Robbins. Now, I think there's already a remake of this in production. I don't know if they ever actually finished it. Uh, it's been on IMDb for like two years now with the full cast and everything. So I don't really know if that's come to fruition. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and ignore that for the purposes of this. And uh, again, I, this was a, I thought of the film before I thought of the filmmaker pick. Um, and I thought of a couple of directors, but the one I kept coming back to is Alex Garland, uh, who did uh, Annihilation this year um, and who did uh, Ex Machina a couple of years ago. If you have seen Jacob's Ladder, I think pairing uh, the director of Annihilation will make a lot of sense to you. Uh, it, it, it is a very dreamy movie, and Annihilation uh, succeeds in that dreamy, nightmarish place that Jacob's Ladder uh, lives in. Uh, and again, I, I, there's just something about Alex Garland and, and the work that he's done so far that I, I think lends him to the source material really, really well. And uh, again, it, it's a... Uh, it's a film that has been done to death, so I honestly don't know that a remake of Jacob's Ladder uh, is going to be that good. Uh, much like uh, Fight Club and uh, tons of films, comic books, video games, television shows have done that twist before. The Jake, the twist that Jacob's Ladder is very famous for uh, is honestly a twist that's so famous it predates Jacob's Ladder. So I, I, I honestly think it's been done to death, but there's something about that film that is so weird and special that uh, I, I really feel like uh, modern uh, film production techniques would really lend themselves to a remake of that film. So that is my first pick. Awesome. I like that very much. I like, Arthur, that you suggested The Mummy as sort of one of the sort of lesser, you know, uh, the minor arcana, if you will, of the universal horrors. And I was also thinking of the universal horror stuff because, you know, Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, those kind of things are done so much. The triumvirate, if yeah, you will. Yeah, even the creature from the Black Lagoon. But I, I thought, well, if we went to the minor arcana uh, a little bit of that, I was thinking about the invisible 
man. I love Claude Rains, and I love that particular performance. I love kind of how silly it is. I love that you can think about it in terms of body horror. And, my, and initially, my brain was going to David Cronenberg's Invisible Man, but I went away from that. Because I think one of the things that Claude Rains is so good at, at is being silly and being British and being sort of befuddled and bewildered and also body horror. And I thought, well, no, what we need is Edgar Wright and we need uh, uh, Simon Pegg to come together to put together a remake yes, of The Invisible Man. Please. That I would, would watch be it for days. so much fun. You know, y- your boy, uh, Paul Verhoeven, did a remake, right? Of The Invisible Man? Yeah, yeah. Hollow Man with Hollow Kevin Bacon. Hollow Man. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Was Verhoeven involved in yeah. Hollow Yeah, he's the director. director. Yeah. Oh. Okay, my Verhoeven is uh, a little lacking in there. Yeah, that that's a film that really teases out the subtext of the Invisible Man. That uh, any any guy who becomes invisible is going to he's going to become a creepy sex criminal. Yeah, yeah. he's going to be a fucking disgusting perv. Uh, there's actually, I think it it might have been Tolkien. It might have been uh, the the author of the Invisible Man. But somebody very famous did a very famous piece of writing about why invisibility is like. The superpower that most lends itself to evil. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, it's very interesting, and I, I think Edgar uh, Edgar writes the right direction to go, Dustin. Because, yeah. yeah, look, I don't need, I don't know that I need. We've got Hollow Man that kind of plays with that, yeah, that, which would be in that, that Cronenbergian vein. Yeah, it yeah. plays with that sexual perversion subtext. I, I think, yeah, going with a weirder, sillier version of it might be the better way to which go. Which is still pervy, perhaps, and it, funny. Yeah, pervy in a way that doesn't that. Uh, Allows that stuff to stay subtext. I think. Yeah. Pervy where it goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think I think if you let the subtext of that become text, it just is not going to be enjoyable for anybody to watch. Truth. I, I think that's a good pick, man. I do too. I, I like that a lot. I also think we should do Hollow Man on the show at some point. I think we need to I because think it's worth I didn't. It was Verhoeven. I didn't realize it was Verhoeven. So I, yeah, it needs to happen. I think we should do Jacob's Ladder. That's part of why I brought it up. Well, there you go. Okay. Well, moving on to number next, Arthur Gordon. What is your number next pick for uh, your reboot and your director? Well. As you two both know, in the last few weeks, I've developed a fondness for uh, one uh, Mr. Pumpkinhead. Yes, yes, we are aware. We, um, yeah, you've been praising the the, the Saint Pumpkinhead. You you've been like Linus in Charlie Brown and the Great, the Pumpkin, great Pumpkinhead, talking about Arthur the pumpkin. It, it, it has been obnoxious. So yes, I believe words and phrases like Pumpkinhead baby uh, have exited your mouth quite a few times. True, and so I'm leading with that. I want a Pumpkinhead remake. And I want it from the director is of... Is it a, Pumpkin Spice uh, Latte Head? Is that what you're going to do? Pumpkin Spice Girls. <laughs> yes, it's Pumpkin Spice World. Um, I want Pumpkin Head remade, and I want um, David Bruckner to tackle this. Now, David, David Bruckner did a little film this year called The Ritual. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, The Ritual's good. And I'm thinking of that visual aesthetic of the wilderness and the woods and that creature design, and you give that talent... Uh, a story like Pumpkinhead, which really relies on those elements. It relies on the uh, the setting and, and that aesthetic, but it also relies on a great creature design. And I, I think you could have a lot of fun uh, with that while tackling some of the themes of Pumpkinhead, of, of, of violence and revenge and, and everything that it kind of goes into there uh, with a, a, a young up-and-comer who's kind of got that niche going for him. And so that would be my second pick. Awesome. I like that very, very much. Okay, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your number next pick? My number next pick is going to be uh, The Lost Boys. Now, mm. this is a film that uh, has a, had a late sequel. Um, I, I think we're still about 10 to 15 years out from a Lost Boys remake. Don't get me wrong, because it's probably... 
much in the way that even though it's set in the 80s, The Lost Boys seems to be engaging with the 60s a lot. Uh, although I, you can make the argument it's engaging with the 80s quite a bit. Uh, I just I think we're not ready yet. My uh, God, we're going to have a bunch of hipster right <laughs> well, I mean, vampires. honestly, probably, yeah. And that's why I'm like, all right, we don't... They're artists in blood. We need to go a little bit further out. But I think the director to do it is Karen Kasama. Uh, or Karen yeah. Kasama. Yeah. I, I just like her a lot. Uh, she's already dabbled in a lot of the things that Lost Boys has to say with Jennifer's body, which I think we talked about earlier in this marathon. Um, I know we didn't talk about the movie, but we mentioned her and her work already this marathon. But... I know from the Switchblade Sisters podcast that she's a huge fan of Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. And at first I was going to say, well, she should just reboot Near Dark. And I, look, somebody who loves Near Dark is not going to want to do a remake of it. But she has an understanding about like what makes vampires interesting um, as, a, as a monster. Uh, again, listening to her on Switchblade Sisters talk about her love of Near Dark and talk about Jennifer's body. She, just, she has an understanding of a lot of the subtext stuff that makes these monsters particularly interesting. And I, I just think that uh, uh, from her filmography, especially uh, Invitation, I know we've got Destroyer coming out this year, but Invitation and Jennifer's Body were the two I kept thinking about, thinking about like why she would be so good at Lost Boys. And I think th- there's just something to the aesthetic of both of those movies that lend themselves to maybe taking the camp of Lost Boys down a, a click or two and then dialing up a lot of... Uh, the the horror that is in that film. Uh, yeah, I just think she could really knock that one out of the park. And Lost Boys is, again, we've talked about this on the show before, this film. Uh, a film that I like, don't love. I know, I see why other people love it. I, I liked it a lot more when I was 12. Um, but I, I think that is another film that is kind of ripe for being uh, readapted. Uh, I just think that there's a lot of a lot of good stuff in that film uh, that uh, was was done just really well. Again, it's not that the film is bad by any stretch of the imagination, but I think if you're going for like a full on, full blown classic, it's never going to live up. Although apparently Luca's Suspiria is great, but I, I think when you're looking for something to remake, it's something that uh, could use with new life being breathed into it. I, I guess is what I mean. And Schumacher's film is good, uh, but I, I think Kasama could really do something interesting with it. Awesome, awesome. Well, I like that for a number next pick very much, Dalton. Um, I am moving in to that Val Luton territory, and I want to take you through the process of elimination and decision making as I was thinking about what to do here because I was I love uh, the cat people curse the cat people I, the, that 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 sort of stuff is great, and I thought, man, uh, that atmospheric, very very scary kind of. Uh, you know, uh, off-screen to an extent horror, and I thought, man, would the Coen brothers be able to do something along those lines? So that's the initial thinking. Uh, and I was just going in the RKO backlog, you know, sort of outside of uh, that uh, those universal horrors in that Val Luton cycle. And as I was thinking about RKO, um, and recently uh, Bella Lugosi's birthday was not very long ago, and I thought, oh, you know what we need? We need to see the voodoo zombie, not the uh, the sort of George A. Romero zombie, but we need to bring back the voodoo zombie, but we need to bring it back in the 21st century. We need to bring it back woke. We need to bring it back with a bit more political subtext, subtext to it. And I thought, I need Ryan Coogler's white zombie. And that is would be so much fun. Man, I want to see Ryan Coogler's horror movie. Yeah. I'm into that. That's, yeah. that's a genre I need, I need him to dabble with. When he gets done with Black Panther 2, or maybe even between... You know, now in Black Panther two, maybe he'll make a really small horror movie. Because, oh man, that's that's a movie I want to see. Yeah, I mean, look, Fruitvale Station's a horror movie. Let's be honest. True, uh, but uh, yeah, damn, I want to see that. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think it'd be really fun and interesting. I thought about Jordan Peele a little bit, but I thought he's kind of made that movie already. Yeah, Get Out's got a lot of that subtext. So already. I was like, let's let's move away and let's give it into another set of hands. And Coogler's uh, uh, White Zombie uh, would be very very interesting uh, to me. So that is my number next pick. Let's move on to number last because that's how counting works. Mister Arthur Gordon, what is your number last selection? I Dalton inspired. I'm, I'm audibling because Dalton inspired me by cheating uh, with his. Night. Well, never mind. I don't want to do that, I don't think. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I do want to hear your audible after the fact, okay, though. Okay, I will. We'll give uh, it as an honorable mention. So I'm going to go with this original pick, I think. I I, I want to go with a movie that's already been remade once. Okay. And uh, it, it was remade into a version that far exceeded the original, and that is John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, they, they tried this uh, with Mary Elizabeth Winstead yeah, in 2010, like the, the, the pseudo-prequel. Yeah, prequel-sequel thing that they did. Uh, but I, 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 I want to see a sequel directed by Catherine Bigelow. Oh, man. That, that kind of has this political subtext thing going on. She knows how to make movies about macho guys. Yeah, yeah. she does. And I, I think she's got the right... Uh, skill set to really build a very tense, quiet film uh, filled with paranoia and, and suspense and intrigue uh, and then just kind of lets it go all out uh, as everything starts to unravel. And, and that's something I'd really like to kind of see uh, come together. I, I think it would be an interesting uh, marriage of, of art and artist. Absolutely. Now, what's that uh, What's that honorable mention that you almost call not a blonde? Because I am curious. I, I was going to say I want to see Brian Fuller's Silence of the Lambs. Ah, Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. Man, it's, I it's what I want to see. I, 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 more than anything, I want to see the the fulfillment of what he started. And there's a lot of right stuff that kept Silence from being uh, put to the TV show. But uh, just everything that he did with those narratives i'm just i want to see how he would twist it on its head in 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 the science of the lamp story uh what would he do with buffalo bill what would he do with clarice what would we get uh with that relationship between clarice and you know hannibal lecter would he will find graham a way be, yeah would he find a way to work will graham into it yeah, yeah. And, and you know that's that's what i'm curious about I, I would love to see that played out and and just to see those colors those sets those those visuals on a big screen uh, I think would just be captivating. Now, do you think it would work better as a as a theatrical film, or do you think it would work better as like a it's season four of Hannibal, but it's like a, an agreed upon miniseries type thing? I, I think the miniseries thing would work better just because of the longevity that he's able to establish in these characters and the the kind of arcs that are built. And I think mm-hmm. you can obviously tell a more nuanced story over a longer period of time. But I I I, I think cinematically, you give it two two and a half hours, and I think you could see some really fun stuff play out. I'm just tired of Brian Fuller having to quit jobs because people won't leave him alone. Like, hey, studios, just give the man some money and let him work. You know he's going to make something good. I'd really like to see his Munster stuff. Yes. Mockingbird Lane. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. I think they did at least a pilot in a couple of episodes, but I know it it didn't get uh, put into order. Yeah, I've I've, I've heard tell of this. Um, So my last pick is, uh, my number last pick, as Justin likes to say, um... Dustin has already touched on zombies. Uh, I really fought inclusion of this. Like, I, there was a wrestling that happened, but zombies. We're we're at a, we're at a tipping point with them uh, of them having to go away for a couple of decades, and uh, I think the only way to save them is to go back to the the source material and read and take take it back to Night of the Living Dead. If we're going to keep George A. Romero's uh, style zombies on the table for another generation, 
Um, we we've we've got to do something again. It, it's got to really reconvey the the horror of of the person against person. And I, again, there's just something about The Walking Dead that does not work for me at all. Uh, I I really gave that show a shot, man. I I really did. I wanted to like it so much, but it it just there's something missing. Um, and again, it's going to require somebody that can breathe new life into something old. Uh, and, and I think the person to do it's Jeff Nichols, uh, okay. because I think with, uh, the paranoia of take shelter lends itself. I think you're going to have to talk about survivalist subcultures, uh, in a modern zombie fiction. And I, I think that's the problem. So many of the zombie stories we're telling right now are just reiterating uh romero's uh, dead trilogy i think you're gonna have to breathe new subtext and new life into them and i think nichols does uh paranoia so well in take shelter i think he does uh love for the people you care about so well in midnight special uh, and again he shoots you know he's he's from uh missouri i think he's arkansas, he's arkansas. i knew he's from the ozark area he, he shoots uh forests with just such a beautiful eye and rule areas with such a beautiful eye and i think that's going to be the way to do it is to move away from the city zombie story and back into a rule story uh because it's easy to forget but night living dead is a is a rule story it is not it isn't until dawn of the dead that he moves into the urban sphere uh and, and i think taking it back to a, a rule storytelling is going to be the way that works and i think just jeff nichols just has an understanding of rural American culture uh, that that's going to lend itself to that, and again, I think the political and social subtext is so so important, and uh, I, I think he, he's shown that he can handle that really well with loving, uh, which you know could have been a real like shouty posturing courtroom drama, and and instead it's just a story about two people who really love each other, man, and it's a quiet, sensitive movie, and I think when you take those those three films and put them in a blender and throw some buckets of gore and zombies, I, th- I think you get something really unique and special if Jeff Nichols tackles that that source material. So that is my number last pick. Dustin, uh, take us on home. What do you got? Okay, so this last film, um, the remake I want to see is, now it has been remade as a TV miniseries because of adaptation problems. I'm talking about The Shining. And mm-hmm. and the reason why I want to see a remake of The Shining is that I love the original 1980 film. I think it's gorgeous. I think it's well realized. I think it's got all this great uh, horror stuff going on with it. But it's also got Kubrick's misogyny all over it, and I cannot get past just the way he treats Shelley Duvall and the way the screenplay really treats Shelley Duvall as a character. I want to really strengthen that female character, especially because it is a film of, in a lot of ways, uh, it's not about the moon landing. It's about uh, an alcoholic father, an abusive alcoholic right. uh, patriarch, honestly. And, and escaping that, and I do think you do need to go uh, maybe a little bit of that Dario Argento, uh, Mother of Tears sort of direction. That like you need to amp up the gore a little bit uh, with okay. what's going on with it. And so I thought about the fr- new French extremity, and I want to see Claire Denis, whose uh, recent high um, was High Life is uh, the film that just came out this year that's mm-hmm. getting really well lauded as her first American English language uh, film. I love her uh, vampire turn with Trouble Every Day, and so I know she has some skill in dealing with the horror, although she's not really a horror director per se. Um, and I think that her hands holding the shining uh, mythos and dealing with the source material, dealing with the original films, its referentiality, its metatextuality, all of that stuff together, I think Claire Denis' The Shining would be a, a real way to finally uh, put that film to bed. Uh, to do that great visual styling, a la Kubrick, but also that woman's touch uh, that we can actually be fair to Wendy Torrance, uh, played by Shelley Duvall in the 1980 original, and uh, that way we get something that I can still watch and not feel gross. Give me 
Robert Pattinson as Jack Torrance. Okay. Yeah, because he's on High Life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Robert Pattinson as Jack Torrance would, that would fucking bang. Yeah. That. Oh man, he would kill it. He would be so good. Give me Robert Pattinson. Having resurgence. You know what? Hey, give me that. Give me that. Give give me that. Yeah. Yeah. Give me that. Give me that Pat Stew reteam. Yeah. That's the movie that you bring him back together for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's been that, working with Oliver Sayas all the time yeah. anyway, so I know she's got a no Denis by now. This I want to see it so yeah. bad right now. This is the movie you put him back together for. I want to see it so bad. And you have him, oh, it brings so much subtext from the Twilight movies. Yeah. Yes. Oh, these relationships and shit. Oh, my God, that and, movie and would be so it, good. Denis eats that stuff up anyway. Oh, How my much God. money do we need to raise right now to get this thing produced? Look, even if it's not a Shining remake, let's just... Go in! Oh my God, they would be so good together in a ghost story about abuse. Ah, damn! I want to see this movie. <laughs> Let's call it. This is a show, guys. All right. Yeah, we we don't need to analyze these films. There's 40 years of writing. Let's call it a week. I'm telling you right now, of all the projects we just pitched, at least one of those is a 10 million dollar idea. I yeah, I hope so. I'm oh. telling you, I I got a good feeling about it. I'm on board. Call us. All right, well, there you go, dear listener. That is our gameplay. I believe now it's time to get down to business. All righty, and we are back and ready to do some spicy analysis. Now, normally, spicy we'll... meatball analysis. Spicy meatball analysis because it's Italian. Now, I'm going to ask you, Dustin, because uh, you're the one that's going to lead this roundtable, as per usual. Uh, generally, when we do a, a, a big episode like when we did the uh, the Hanks Ryan trilogy and when we did the Spider Man trilogy, we tend to break these episodes up into two parters um, because we try to analyze all three films separately. Are we going to just going to analyze these as a piece? What, what do you think? Well, you know, I think we'll do something along these lines. I think we're going to analyze uh, Suspiria and Inferno for the most part. As a piece. As a piece. And then we're going to talk. We're gonna. We're not going to analyze. We're just going to talk a little bit about Mother of Tears. We're going to do a little group therapy on uh, Mother of Tears. Yeah, we, yeah we, need, we need to hold each other, I think, a little bit because <sighs> Mother of Tears is a thing that... Is... I saw things go into places, man, and I saw things coming out of butts. There were things in butts. Things got jammed in the mouths, and it's not good. It's well, sad. Th- from the vagina to the mouth. I mean, yeah. yeah no. uh, well, I was, I was thinking that first kill, too. I adver- had to avert my eyes for that kill, man. Like, I, I got a pretty strong stomach when it comes to movie gore, but I... I knew where that was going, and I I didn't need to see it play out, dude. I don't I don't need that in my life. So we're gonna get to that misogyny and just general hatred of humanity later. It's just so unpleasant. But I I, I do want to talk about first of all just the first two films, and I want to talk about the film as uh, experience because we we've had a few movies that we've seen that are not about what happens; it's about just what happened, and you leave kind of high. After yeah. having yeah. watched those movies, Holy, Holy Mountains, the, the kind of the big E on the I chart here for other films we've done that kind of fit into this category. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Eras- Eraserhead, Eraserhead yep. might work yep. in that way. Uh, we we talked about Barbarian Sound Studio, yep. Yep. Beyond the Black Rainbow, Beyond the oh, Black yeah. Rainbow. And so, uh, what is it that makes that happen? What what is it that needs to happen? I want to know the sin qua non. I want to know without this, it, it's not the thing. So, how is is it just sparse narrative and good visuals? What is it that makes those kinds of exper- experience films work. I, I don't think it's a f- lack of narrative. I don't think that matters so much because, I mean, you can strip the narrative from a film and, you know, still have it pretty well designed or directed. It's still going to it's gonna lack oomph. It's going to lack that. I, I, I think it's when a filmmaker starts to play with those other elements. I, I think 
the 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 design matters. I think the score matters. I, I think those visual elements. It's it's what does that filmmaker do to spruce up the visual art element of his film? Because that's where we have to start looking at it. it's it's something like Upstream Color, which you know I don't like, but I mean I think Cruz all about developing an experience where you as the audience have to engage and your uh, personal experiences give the film meaning right it's it's not necessarily i mean there's some narrative to that film but what you walk away from that film with is what you take into that film and i think that's where you are with Suspiria or things of its ilk is that you have to have um this kind of artistry on on show uh, you know, whether that's colorful lighting effects or if that's a powerful score or, um, you know, anything like that. I, I think there may have to be this kind of surreal, otherworldly element to it, whatever form that takes. But I, 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 you know, I don't know that narrative, I think a lack of narrative helps to emphasize those other elements, but I don't know that that's the main thing. I, it's interesting, though, Arthur, because as you were saying that, I was, I was, thinking about like what are films that have a tight narrative that still achieve this and what are films that aren't super surreal that still achieve this and you know we talked about uh Catherine Bigelow and uh, Karin Kasama in our game I think they've both achieved this I think Invitation does a really good job of putting you in a feeling and a headspace and I think uh Zero Dark Thirty does this as well and these are both very narrative heavy films you know they're not they, they don't play around with uh a skewing traditional narratives right I mean they are an A to B to C to D story, both yep. of these films. But they succeed because they make you feel things in the way they tell that narrative, whether for you know Zero Dark Thirty, it, it's making you feel the time and the sacrifice, yeah. uh, uh, the human sacrifice. And I don't just mean like the sacrifice of your time. I mean the sacrifice of your soul to achieve a goal yeah. uh, that, that we see uh, Jessica Chastain's character go through. This This person who comes in thinking she's ready to do it all and, learning what doing it all means you know it means uh ruining other people's lives to say that we got the bad guy yeah for invitation it means uh the the paranoia that we talk about in suspiria the invitation does such a good job of hiding its hand and making you wonder whether or not your lead character is the one with the problem for so long and again we don't want to spoil that movie because we haven't talked about it before uh, on the show but I, I think Kusama does such a good job. And the visuals in that film aren't particularly like dreamy or trippy or anything. They're pretty standard, but there is a, a way the film is shot that increases that paranoia. So I think you can still get to that experiential headspace in a film that's you know pretty conventional in terms of narrative and visuals. I think it is, can you get the audience into the, the protagonist's headspace? And I, I, I mean, the other element I think to this is, is, is if you're talking about cinema as an experience, mm-hmm. and and I don't want to go into the, you know, do movies need to be seen in a theater rabbit hole? I don't think that's a relevant conversation right now because I think you can have just as much of an experience with a film in your living room as you can in a theater by yourself with a packed house. Whatever, let's not go down that. Um, but I, I think of something like uh, Life of Pi, or I think of Gravity, which were both very affecting. Uh, pieces and I, 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 the, I think there's a stronger narrative there than say something like Suspiria. I think yeah. there's a much for sure more defined narrative. But I think they're think they're still very effective because you've got directors who are toying with what they can do with filmmaking. What can I do with three D? What can I do with a green screen? What can I do with these new visual digital elements that may have not been done before and how can I make that effective? Uh First Man's another one. I I, I it's heavily narrative film. But it is all about 
the cinematic experience and and how does that leave you feeling when you leave i think for me this is my hypothesis is that it, it it's about not really the lack of you know style or the lack of substance it is what works in service of the other that sometimes style works in service of the substance of the narrative in in many films and so in in so far as your camera choices your movement uh your your lighting choices your costuming choices those kind of things they do, they they serve the plot that's one way to approach film which is the more typical way it's more of a classical hollywood sort of approach looking at you david thompson but i think on on the other side of the coin is that substance is what you're trying to you're trying to create or rather style is what you're really trying to create you're trying to create uh that that again sort of amb- uh, ambiguous term atmosphere that yeah. you're creating a sense a mood a feeling a atmosphere that you experience as you watch the film and that film can be narratively pretty strong or that film can be narratively you know uh, a bit more sparse but uh, it, it is it's the atmosphere and surface of it and I think a great sort of counterpoint film that has that to uh, Suspiria and Inferno that is nothing like either of those films is uh, Bresson's O Hazard Balthazar okay. um, which is this film which has got a narrative about the life of this donkey and it does move from a to B to C. It's a little sparse, and it's definitely um, episodic and elliptical in the way that that narration takes place. But what Brasson does with his very, very sparse style is you get that sense of hopelessness and cruelty and of suffering that is endured by uh, sort of the main character and also by Balthazar the donkey, and that it creates that uh, sort of uh, solemnity it creates that uh, that that uh, sadness that you experience uh, as you watch the film and so you leave with this terrible feeling of sadness and of uh, just uh, sort of a righteous indignation at what goes on in the world and the treatment of women and the treatment of animals and the treatment of just uh, man's inhumanity to man that kind of thing it is created with a very very sparse style as opposed to a very sort of garish over the top style that Argento uses well and I think uh, I'm I'm going to go ahead and bring up Zero Dark Thirty again because I think that fits in that right. midpoint, right? Because it is a very traditional action movie style that, that Bigelow is using in that film. But everything that you're seeing is not what you're used to seeing in an action movie. You're not used to seeing people get tortured and not, you know, you're used to getting see them get beat up by James Bond and that's maybe the extent of the torture. You're not used to seeing people get waterboarded or mm-hmm. force fed or deprived of sleep. Uh, and, and it's so upsetting but it's shot in this kind of like action thriller procedural style and it, it is it causes your brain to have this this moment of um, cognitive dissonance right mm-hmm. because you're seeing these things that are supposed to be that are shot like they're supposed to be fun and exciting but they're definitely not and when you do get to the fun exciting stuff at the end of the film where there you know there's the raid on the compound it doesn't quite feel right it doesn't it feels wrong because it, maybe it is, and that, I think that's what she's playing with there. And again, you've got that transcendental style and Ahazar Bathazar that's really sparse, and you know, trying to like make you just see the world as it is. And then uh, in Suspiria, you've got this unreality, and I think that middle ground Hollywood reality again can be uh, it gets left out of this conversation of film as experience, and I think mm-hmm. it can be super effective for that same reason. It's, it's interesting to me that you keep you're, you're drawing on Bigelow who. We watched The Loveless earlier this year. Yes, and and that's a film that draws super very, stylish, yeah, very heavily from a, a Lynchian style of filmmaking. That kind of surreal. Well, and Kenneth Anger, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, it's interesting how that's influenced her filmmaking style and what yeah. that leads to with something like Zero Dark Thirty or even The Hurt Locker. Exactly, I, and I think it is uh, you know having a filmmaker who even if they are interested in action cinema 
has also an education in the these other ways of experiencing film and thinking about film, they can lend themselves to, you know, a traditional action film. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about color coding a little bit, um, especially with Suspiria, because uh, there are three major areas in the film that uh, are, are coded and colored. And, and I want to talk about sort of the effectiveness of doing two different things in film when it comes to color film and style. Uh, there's a lot of love given to black and white stylistics and uh, German expressionism and its American uh, sort of format, which is the, the thing called film noir, that cycle from, what, 1941 to about 1958-ish. Uh, there. Um, this is sort of one of those moments where color film is very much uh, coded and styled uh, in the same way that you see uh, in a film noir. And I want to I want to ask this question. So in Suspiria, what we see are the attic area, which is clearly blue. We see the uh, dormitory area, which is clearly very very red. We see the uh, the the sort of heart of the building in Freiburg, in which the mother of size resides, which is very much coated in gold or yellow right there. And that there's sort of this interaction between that. And when those transitions happen between those places, uh, that's when the green light sort of finds its way uh, in there. But also, to, you know, there are times when the red lights just used to bathe, sort of like the terminal space that you talked about in the opening scene of the film, etc. So that that's a using where there's uh, just tons of this is the color I'm hitting you with that color in Suspiria, as opposed to Inferno, which has is, is a film that just decides we're going to use a not you know sort of typical, not sort of typically realistic set of uh, lighting choices in which much of what we're going to experience is going to be very very uh, red and very very blue mixed into this sort of uh, kind of purple fuchsia kind of shading in that film. So we've got uh, what one critic called in Suspiria this candy-colored nightmare. In this other film, we've got uh, basically a a, a work of art that's got a distinct color palette a la Picasso's blue period. Um, What do we think about uh, color-coding areas as choices in filmmaking in terms of style and as opposed to just picking a palette for how you do film? Um, What's the experience that we prefer and when is it effective, when is it ineffective? Uh, What would we say about that kind of filmmaking? and specifically about Suspiria and Inferno. I, I mean, personally, I, I, I do lend to, tend to lean towards a color palette for a film as opposed to color coding things. I think if you go too heavy into the color coding, you, you get people who get distracted by that, honestly. And it's not the casual viewer. It's going to be kind of the film nerd. It's going to be the uh, the cinephile. It's going to get distracted by these color codings and say, well, what does it mean that this room is this color? Well, probably nothing, honestly. It just looks dope. And that's fine. I mean, it just makes you feel a thing. Uh, this filmmaker wants you to feel this thing when you're in this room. It doesn't mean that this room being color-coded means anything. And I think that's why a color palette can work a little bit better sometimes, whether it's, you know... Um, the the neon hues of uh, Drive or Thief, or it's the pastels of Annihilation. You know, Gar- Alex Garland's film we talked about earlier. It's very green and pastel because they're in in the woods, almost iridescent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that works a little bit better. And I, I do think the color to to get back to Inferno. I, I think the purples of that film, and again, he, it'll skew a little bit more red or a little bit more blue in some scenes. But I, I just think that that keeps you in a headspace. It introduces you to a headspace very quickly and says, this is how you're going to feel for the rest of the movie. And it, it plays in uh, modes or, or hues of that one specific palette. Uh, that's just a you know personal preference thing, though. Because I do like what Suspiria does with the 
very garishly lit rooms that this is the red room and this is the yellow room. They even call one of the rooms the yellow room, one of the dance studios uh, that they practice in. And that can be good, too. It's just, you know, not a personal preference. Again, your mileage may vary on uh, what you like or don't like. Um, but but I, I think in terms of imparting a, a sense of feeling or emotion, I think sticking to hues in one palette can be a little bit more effective. Uh, but for something like Suspiria, where you do want that that dreaminess, it can be just as effective. I mean, Annihilation, we just talked about, it's got these iridescence and these, these um, pastels. It gets that dreamlike feeling. Suspiria gets that too, and it and it's doing it with different color palettes in different rooms. So again, both work. Uh, it it just really is a matter of what you know, what fits the narrative or lack thereof better. I I I, I think I tend to agree with Dalton. I mean, as far as you know, I think palettes are more useful for kind of building your you know your design around in your film. I I, I think uh, color coding works a lot more too. You know, when you're establishing a, a this is a nightmare or that this is a dreamscape um i think it can be much more effective as far as going with symbolism or you know things of that nature and, and i think that's where it's important it's very effective you know i think of hereditary where we kind of had a uh, a moment where the treehouse i think is lit red and you can see it and nothing else in the film is lit red but that one area and i think it's effective mm-hmm. when you use it in kind of small doses to highlight a certain element i think of tangled which uses yellow a lot um to similar effect and uh, I, I think that's that's when it's effective. You know, if your whole film is just color code, you know, bright, garish colors throughout without much nuance or effect, I think Suspiria does it very well. Uh, but I think it's easy to be, get distracted, like Dalton said. Um, color palette, I think, is what we're more familiar with. You know, you think of somebody like Anderson, or you, you, and, and even not just filters. You know, you got guys who shoot with the blue filter, you know, or a green filter. Like we had Green Room was shot with that kind of overlay of yellows or greens or whatever and it kind of makes it this you know fincher-esque seven feeling film right and it's not so much about the color it just kind of adds to the uh aesthetic itself it's kind of gritty or grimy or if you want it to be clean or cold um and so i i think that's where the kind of color coding comes a little bit more to effect is when you have it kind of overlaying your film itself and affecting the whole tone of the piece. Yeah, I tend to agree with what you guys have said entirely. I think when you when you do the color coding thing, you are definitely running into a world of symbolism. It may be empty symbolism where you're not really going to say it necessarily means a thing, but you are uh, inviting the viewer to sort of import meaning into that. Uh, one of the disciples of Dario Argento is Guillermo del Toro. A great example is Pan's Labyrinth, where we have sort of those cold blues that we experience in sort of the real fascist world. We have those golds that we experience every time uh, Ophelia goes into one of her little fantasy realms, the the world of that toad or the pale man, etc. And then you've got the green world uh, that sort of inner twines those two, uh, which is sort of that world of the of the of the fawn itself. And so you, you sort of need to figure out what that means and how those colors uh, convey those meanings as, again, opposed to a palette. Where I, I think about the Matrix, and this is a two different worlds kind of thing as well, but there's a cold blueness to the real world that Natro, Neo experiences, and then there is a sort of greenness uh, to the digital world uh, that you experience within the Matrix. And and I think that's where it's effective, right, is, is when you're... I think all the examples we've mentioned are using it to delineate spaces, yes. right? Or delineate headspaces, whether it's a physical location or a, or a feeling. I think that's when those very hard, dis- distinct cuts in color 
uh, are really effective. And I think that's why it works in Suspiria is all of these colors are supposed to put you at ill ease. Mm-hmm. He's just wanting you to have a different kind of ill ease in these different environments. Right. And, and I think because it's clearly going for fever dream all the time, always, it, it kind of manages to get out of the way, get out of its own way in terms of getting lost to uh, making you think about symbolism. And then whereas in Pan's Labyrinth, I think this symbolism is just a, hey, we're in a different place now. Right. Ditto for the Matrix. Which is more into that palette area of Inferno in, yeah. in that sense. And so Inferno being the sort of, again, purpley kind of fuchsia-toned uh, kind of film, it does that. And, you know, you, there's lots of examples of that use of color, this specific sort of palette kind of choices. Uh, an, an example in experimental film that I think um, I haven't talked about enough, probably on this show or just in general, is uh, this great uh, sort of uh, recovered footage uh, experimental piece called American Falls that Uses quite a uh, quite a few uh, Harry uh, Henry Lloyd movies and a bit of Charlie Chaplin kind of stuff, and it's all been saturated in this uh, chemical bath that gives it this really really rich kind of sepia tone. And uh, Solomon and other places will sort of do like a Joseph Cornell blue dye as well with some of his cinema. And uh, I, I think that kind of experience where it, it's still black and white film, but instead of just black and white, we've now got a different sort of monochromaticness to that tone. Is monochromatics of brown to black as opposed to uh, whites to black, a monochromaticness of uh, blues to black again as opposed to black, uh, whites to black and that that is interesting and creates a very very different sort of sense and a sense of associations. With American Falls it's definitely a nostalgia kind of sense that you experience you can look at those opening parts of Andre Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker which are shot in that sort of sepia tone for the real world which is a, sort of a regular color world by the end of the film after having gone into the zone which is shot in a full 70s kind of color. Um, So that kind of shooting and uh, applying those kinds of filters I think is interesting uh, insofar as you just know kind of where you are and it does give cues to what you you should be experiencing like the Chiascura blacks and whites that you might find in a film noir that you're supposed to feel this sort of sense of dread and horror and deep shadow. And uh, I, I like that, that there's a general tone across the level of the film more than sort of this overt symbolism, unless it is, and uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria is a good example of this, where it's an empty symbolism. It's just, it is different space, it's different headspace, but we're just shifting between the various and sundry tones and giving sort of a sumptuous feast for the eyes. And I think everything we're talking about uh, really just highlights the craft that goes into lighting, which is not something we talk a lot no. about on this show. I mean, we are kind of theory guys uh, more than uh, function and craft guys, or form guys, I should say. I mean, the theory is kind of where we live in terms of what does a film mean or what does it say. But uh, this, we've talked a lot about lighting just now. And I, if this is something that you're interested in, listener, I would encourage you to learn more about it because it's really cool. Uh, I mean, whether we're talking about... Uh, gel screens in front of lights that are being used to light the set, or we're talking about natural lighting and just making sure your set has colors that are going to, you know, really pop when they're filmed. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to do this. Post-production kind of color correction. Bingo. I mean, which is, a, you know, a thing that's really become more prevalent over the last 20 years or so, uh, especially with digital photography versus, you know, uh, stock photography or um, analog photography. But even with that, I mean, the different processing of analog photography, you can do a whole lot of stuff. So, I mean, again, this is, uh, we, there is so much to know about this that I, we probably know like 1% of everything there is to know about this process, but, uh, there, there's a lot of really cool things to be learned when you start, uh, reading about the form of, uh, of lighting for film. It's, it's 
pretty interesting stuff. So let's get into something that's a bit more theoretical, a bit more political, a bit more identity politics. And so the first two films, uh, in my mind, are slasher films that have high artistic uh, pretensions, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just that we are definitely going to do a highly constructed, highly artistic sort of version of making these kinds of films. But they do convey and continue to carry that standard giallo, which is a specific brand of Italian slasher films, and then what ends up uh, being the sort of wide cycle of horror films in the, uh, in the United States in the 1980s. It's continued on today, that idea of the slasher film, which is full of uh, misogyny. I just want to talk about this film and its hatred, and it, its hatred is not ex- only leveled at women, but it's also leveled at animals. So let's do the ASPCA thing, let's do the feminist thing, and let's just talk about what's going on in those first two films, which are, again, sort of hidden within the style, I think. I think it's definitely got the misogyny, I think it's definitely got the animal hatred going on in those first two films, but then is revealed with sort of unvarnished by the time we get to Mother of Tears. So let's 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 talk about how awful this stuff is. Go. Well, that's quite a primer you've given us. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think in Suspiria, it really does feel like more of a. Uh, the, the world is hell type thing. Um, but at the end of the day, we are talking about, uh, and again, I, I don't think this is an intentional subtext by any stretch of the imagination, but anytime we're dealing with uh, uh, witches as villains, we are dealing with a, uh, you know, centuries old uh, fear of women. Absolutely. Uh, and again, we, we talked a little bit about the mystical feminine on uh, our paranormal activity episode. Our, our listener last week wrote in uh, about that. And uh, when we went in to watch these movies, I didn't suspect to, to talk about that anymore, but I, I think we need to a little bit uh, because it, it seems to me, uh, and Robert Eggers, who we've mentioned already, does this uh, very effectively and not quite as problematically in The Witch, um, but there, there's certain when you are bringing in witchcraft, uh, specifically female-coded witchcraft as a villain, you are engaging with a societal fear of women to some extent. Uh, I just think that's what you're doing, whether you mean to or not. Uh, if you're trying to say something about it, then good for you. But if you're just saying, well, I just want to make a movie about witches, bro, that's not how it works, man. Nothing, everything exists in context. In context. There yeah. is no vacuum because you are influenced by the world that created you, and the world that created you burnt women uh, a mm-hmm. lot uh, throughout the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. I mean, it just, we fucking did it a bunch. Uh, in all parts of the world. I mean, this is not, you know, we talk about Salem, Massachusetts a lot, but it happened in Spain. Uh, it happened in the Near East, the Far East. I mean, we have for a long time persecuted women as, a, as you know, a global society for their perceived connection to the, the mystical forces. Uh, real or imagined is kind of irrelevant. What is more relevant is that it, the persecution is documented uh, on a large scale. And the overall sense that is that if a woman has a power, she must have acquired it by um, somehow colluding with evil. Correct, yeah. And that that's weird, man, uh, that it's you want to make your movies about Super that. bad. Uh, and again, the idea of immortal beings that bring death and destruction everywhere they go, I mean, that's just kind of cool and spooky. Mm-hmm. But when you code it as explicitly feminine, there there is a problem there. As mothers. As mothers, bingo. Uh, now, I think in Suspiria, it's less of an issue because everyone in that film is a woman for the most part. There's very few male characters in that movie. Well, Mark's uh, the hero of Inferno. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking about Suspiria specifically yeah. right now, though. I, and that, we'll 
get to Inferno, but I think in Suspiria it's less problematic because the hero is also a woman. Uh, th- this is more about uh, choices in, in terms of who do you align yourself with, right? right? Do you align yourself with yourself or do you align yourself with someone that says they can give you something if you, as long as you don't ask any questions? And, and I think that, that what, that's what makes Suspiria a little less of an issue. I mean, there is me. useless dude with the very, very tight, high-waisted pants. Oh, uh, he's super useless. And, well, there's Udo Kier uh, and the uh, creepy professor guy. Yeah, well, and then there's the, the pianist. Uh, oh, the blind pianist. The blind pianist who gets eaten by his German shepherd and then the, the creepy Romanian guy with the fake teeth. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, there are male characters in Suspiria, but they are just not super important. Right. Not, Su- Susie Banyan is the, the protagonist, capital P, in that film. She's the only... Like character that you were ever given reason to care about in Inferno, we've got probably you know uh, we've got like a trio of protagonists who kind of carry the film. Uh, two of them being women, one of them being uh, Mark, uh, and then his sister, who's I uh, forget that character. Rose. Rose, thank you. I kept thinking of uh, Susie when we were watching Inferno because we watched them all back to back, so I kept squishing character names well, there's together. There's Sarah, I think. There's, there's an Inferno. There's an in Sarah in all three movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think Sarah is uh, Mark's friend in uh, at the music school in Rome, right? Right. So I I think in Inferno, it starts to kind of lean more into that uh, a little bit by accident. But because it is Mark versus the evil witch, it kind of starts to go down that road more. Uh, When we get to Mother of Tears, then we just all want to die. It's a little dicier, though, because he casts his daughter, Asia Argento, as the lead. And again, I don't think there is any like outright... Uh, intended misogyny here, but when we are dealing with the idea uh, of of witches, of specifically of female magic users being evil, there's a historical problem there. And if you're not willing to engage with that historical problem, you're going to end up saying dumb shit on accident. Especially in Mother of Tears, when you start jamming things in people's orifices to kill them. Yes, uh, a good guy who is a witch. Um, she is um basically spitted. Right, that yep. way through, yeah, you know, her her lady parts. Well, and then the the female uh, archaeologist, um, I forget, Giselle, is that what, were they archaeologists anyway? The, a female scientist is killed by having a fucking thing jammed in her mouth, and it splits her. Jo- that movie's gross. I cannot, man. Yeah, it's so fucking nasty. Uh, and she gets disemboweled. It's a whole th- ordeal, man. Uh, but again, that point you start to not. Be, you're not saying things because you've chosen witches as your villain. You're saying things because of how you choose to kill characters in the film. Mm-hmm. It's fine that you're going to kill a bunch of characters in your movie. Well, that's okay. I mean, we watch a lot of gore in, in, on this show, man. Martyrs is a, a watch, but that's saying yeah. something. Mm-hmm. When you're just inflicting pain, specifically sexually coded pain, for no discernible reason, it just makes it seem like you think that's cool, and it's not. It's just a bummer for everyone involved. Like, there's, I, I, I have a hard time imagining those effects were fun to make. E- even as somebody who's like fascinated by gore effects and like thinks a lot about, man, it must have been fun to make uh, Anton Yelkin's floppy wrist in Green Room. That had have been a fun thing to make. I can't imagine a body you can ram things into. That was a weird way to. Cho- to phrase that but it's what happens it's accurate i I mean yeah to the subtext yeah again and that's you're exactly right arthur it creates a subtext that might not have been intended but it's there when you start doing when you start killing people in this fashion on camera sex crimes i mean yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely it's in seven i mean it's the same same idea in seven right yeah at least in seven it's saying something yeah yeah and it's off camera We, we are at least blessed with 
being off camera. And we have to connect the dots with our imagination and think about, you know, religious fundamentalism as it exists in the world. Whereas in Mother of Tears, it just is full of sound and fury signifying nothing. God, ugh. Uh, but again, I think Inferno and Suspiria, because they are, they have more craft, I think it threads that needle a little bit more delicately and it doesn't, when you start looking for things to say, like what is problematic, what doesn't work, I think you're reaching to some extent just because the film does a good job of kind of navigating those things, mm -hmm. probably by accident, honestly, but it does. Uh, then you get to Mother of Tears, and uh, the carelessness causes it to not thread that needle. Well, I think Suspiria and Inferno kind of fall in that sort of slasher film uh, bit of analysis where you can find redeeming and reprehensible points, where you can find sort of the strength of the final girl. You can also find sort of the attacking, stalking, and torturing of women. You can find the phallic uses of devices, and you can also find sort of a, a woman taking the phallus into herself and, you know, taking power um, and stabbing Michael Myers or taking the peacock feather spike thing and stabbing the witch, whatever it happens to be in the films that we're looking at here, or as opposed to, again, say, a Halloween or a Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that. And so it's in that sort of complicated morass uh, in the, that vein, in Infer Inferno and in Suspiria. But again, by the time we get to Crazy Mother of Tears, it's just, no, we are going to use really, really phallic imagery. We are going to use definite violence and torture against women. We are definitely going to uh, do awful things to babies and to animals. And we are going to be utterly unrepentant of doing those Well, things. to be fair to Mother of Tears, nothing bad happens to animals in that movie. We just have an evil monkey. Uh, That's true. The monkey does <laughs> die and it's kind of awesome when it does. Uh, Inferno, let's I guess we'll talk about the animals the a little cats. bit. Uh yeah, so Inferno has some real mishandling of animals that I I don't like, man. Uh be nice to your animals on your set. Yeah. They didn't agree to this. Uh you know me. I'm I'm one of those people who thinks if you think it's sad when the animal dies in a movie, like sadder than the people dying, I think you're weird. I'm sorry. I will always think people who think the dog getting killed is sadder than the people getting killed. Oh, boy. I, again, I'll just uh, I, no, myself out. I know. <laughs> I know you're one of those people, man. And I, I, to some extent, I do get it. I but get Arthur, you already know you're weird. Yeah. That's, that's what I am. But uh, with that said, when I can tell you didn't treat your animals well on set, that does piss me off. Uh, yeah. You know, killing a, you know, blowing up a, a prop dog is whatever. But when I can see that you really threw a real cat at a real person... Cats don't like being thrown, man. No. They don't like it. When I can tell that you really stuffed a bunch of cats in a sack, <laughs> cats don't like that. No. no. They don't care for it. I, I don't even care that he drowns the bag of cats because it's clearly like a robotic bag. That's fine. Like You hope. That character... Oh, God, I fucking hope. Uh, that character's clearly coded as bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, yeah. Is, he is eaten by rats for his cruelty to the cat. Even though the cats are aligned with the witches, yeah. he is treated cruelly for his cruelty. And I'm fine with that. But it is the explicit act of mishandling animals on a film yeah. set. Because you, your actors can sign up to be cold and uh you know in states of undress or states of covered in corn syrup and clearly un uncomfortable but you know and again trust me p human beings can be pressured into doing shit they don't want to do on a film set that happens sure. all the time but an animal cannot even be si can't even sign up for like crossing its thresholds on accident mm -hmm. an animal's just there unless you've got like a really good animal handler on set i 
Mm, it just makes me mad. I don't like yeah. it. Yeah, and, and and there's a weird way in which you know I, we, the Holy Mountain is a movie that's come up already. Yeah, we have the exploding of um, you know lizards and frogs and horny toads, and uh, that's pretty awful and it's terrible. And it, but they're they're mammals. It's, uh, yeah, you, mammals, guys. You you cross different. the line into something with a a better brain, and it starts getting weirder. You can't. Uh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, the blowing up the frogs and the lizards is not it's good. Bad. It's, we are not endorsing that. No, it's very bad. Uh, but yeah, it, there's just you can't. You stop being able to make justifications at a certain point when things are happening. Again, mammals. You're absolutely right. That that higher order of uh, of prefrontal cortex just. Mm, it's not good, and that may be ableist on my part, and um, I am willing to be corrected. But uh, you know, it, it is there is a, there is a diff. It's a, it's an issue of degrees at that point, for sure. And again, I, look, I oh. eat a, I eat a lot of fast food meat. Yeah. Like I can't I can't act like I'm some fucking patron saint. You know, I'm not Saint Francis over here saying I I treat animals good all the time, but I at the very least don't film the bad treatment of them and say that it's entertainment. Oh, there's something more natural about predator and prey and eating a steak than there is filming a cat eating a mouse which is just yeah. I, I see to me the, the mouse the cat eating the mouse i i kind of went back and forth on whether or not it bothered me because cat do what cat do i mean yeah. that that's fine that cat's having a good time the cat's having a great time the mouse probably not so <laughs> not much less of a good time yeah but it's animal exploitation yeah yes it is for sure and and again the rats in the storm drain i go i went back and forth on whether or not that bothered me because i'm like oh yeah that's where rats live yeah like, that's i don't know it's hard to say what's okay and what's not okay, but I look. You see a thing and you know it's not okay. Sometimes you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. Okay, so the last theoretical thread is going to deal directly with Inferno and not Inferno. Excuse me, Mother of Tears. I was going to say the sadness in your voice led me to believe you were going to say Mother of Tears. No, yes. Uh, get back to my sadness. Yes, Mother of Tears. And uh, Argento does this crazy thing where he is clearly suggesting that what he's making is art and is in a tradition of art. That the film opens with all of these Renaissance and medieval paintings and illustrations uh, dealing with, uh, you know, again, sort of. Uh, Horror sort of imagery, torture sort of imagery, pagan imagery, uh, the stuff that was... real Hieronymus Bosch type stuff. Yeah, very much so. And then as the film ends in the credits, same kind of woodcuts and uh, reproductions of paintings. Well, not even... Even before the end credits, when we go into the, uh, the Mother of Tears sanctuary or whatever... We get these images again, just shot in live action by Dario Argento. We have yes. naked female bodies. We have you know things being pulled out of people's butts, you know, by teeth, uh, which you know, cool. You know, look, whatever makes you feel sexy. But you know, I've just also seen like a baby get mangled earlier in the movie, yes. so I'm not on board with sexy stuff uh, at this point in the film. Uh, and it's not shot to be sexy; it is shot to be depraved. Uh, but yeah, we we have all of these images in her lair that kind of recall these paintings from the beginning of the film, right? Yeah, so Dario Argento is definitely making an argument that this last film is art. And the way in which I think he's making this argument is because Inferno and Suspiria definitely are lauded as art horror films. And he's saying this film is art too and it's in the tradition of art even though he's definitely going in a different direction. Um, he's wrong. Tell me why. Well, I do want to read really quickly before we get into that what Dario Argento had to say when uh, Mother of Tears started to get some negative uh, critical reviews. Uh, 
this is uh, just a quote from Argento that uh, I, I found when looking into the reception. It's it's on the Wikipedia page for the film, but I was just kind of reading about the critical reception the film received. Uh, and this is a quote from Argento uh, about film criticism. Uh, the critics don't understand very well, but critics are not important. Absolutely not important, because now audiences don't believe anymore in critics. Many years ago, critics wrote long articles about films. Now in seven lines, they are finished. The story is this. The actor is this. The color is good. Um, to which I would say, well, we've just talked over an hour about your three movies, buddy, so I would say that's, uh, you know, more than seven lines. Uh, and I'm, your movie sucks. I, I don't... The, the shit that bothers me is is the critics that like to come out of the woodwork only when their movies are badly received. And, and again, I, I get it. it it's got to ha- hurt your feelings when people are mean to your movie. Sure. I'm not going to sit here and say criticism shouldn't be nice, because it definitely should be. It absolutely should be. Unless it deserves it. Unless it deserves it. And again, we're not just mean to things for its own sake. There are plenty of bad movies we watched on the show that we still had fun with. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I, Frankenstein, that that movie was called? Uh, did we? Yeah, we did I, Frankenstein for this. Is, yeah, that, which the, is, is that what the Aaron Eckhart movie yeah. is called? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a hoot. The movie's a fun time. It's well, also bad. It's also bad, but we had a good time and we were nice to it. Mother of Tears is both bad and quality and bad in what it's saying because it says nothing and the things that it depicts say things it doesn't mean to say uh you don't get to have it both ways you don't get to be so thankful that uh, critics are the only reason anybody's ever fucking seen suspiria and then get mad when people don't like mother of tears i'm sorry film criticism is the only reason anybody's heard the word suspiria in their entire life film criticism is what gets asses into seats uh now again word of mouth is a big part of that, too. But word of mouth is its own form of film criticism. Everybody has an opinion about film because everybody watches film. It is the people's art to some extent. And I think that's why film literacy is so important because it is a mass culture art, uh, just the same way that television is mass culture art. These are all things that allow you know, my grandparents to appreciate the arts, people who don't really have an interest in the arts. Film allows that, that access and entry point into artistic ways of thinking for people who aren't really that into, you know, artistic pursuits. So when you get on your high horse and say criticism's not important because I like my movie, I'm sorry, you don't get to have it both ways. Uh, so again, I'm off my high horse now. We can get on to saying Argento's a, a turkey. But ugh. I, I, I'll kind of defend him for a bit because okay. I, I, what he's saying in the context of that interview, I, I, I think he's right. I, I think there are, there's a distinction that there are purely critics who don't engage with the text. They look at it from a purely objective standpoint, right? It's, it, it is, you know, this movie's too long. It is too boring. It is too... You know, and there's no engagement with the text itself. What is yeah, it Yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah. I think What's my, the why? The why is missing. I get They've my got reviews the who, what, where, when. students that, I, that write yeah. freshman film criticism for me, and yeah, it's like, I, I didn't like it because I don't like that kind of movie. Well, that's not a good enough reason. And then that being said, Dalton's right. There are obviously... And, and I think, you know, this film comes out in 2007, so if that interview's 2007, really what we've got, this kind of online community of quote-unquote think pieces, which has really taken off with Twitter and with uh, Reddit and with these, you know, all these websites, you know, uh, I can't think of anything. Birth, Birth movies, movies, death, death and, yeah. and you know all those guys and Ehrlich and Singer and Priscilla Page and uh, Amy Nicholson and all these things and podcasts, right? I mean, really podcasts and this this kind of uh, opening up of of film criticism. You know, at, at one point, it was very hard to be a film a published film critic, right? Uh, and you know, when I wanted it was in college and I wanted to be a, a film critic, it was 
kind of hard to be, think about getting a job in film criticism unless you wanted to write for Entertainment Weekly or Rolling Stone or, or, or a newspaper, right? Uh, now everybody's literally a, a critic because everybody can have a blog or a podcaster, and, and, and I think it's a double-edged sword. Uh, and, and I think what he's talking about, he's probably on point, especially in 2007. It's a fair point, yeah. But mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, you're right. I mean, guys like Ebert and guys like you know Ao, whoever you know, those guys, Scott, and, and those guys gave credence to a film like Suspiria and uh, uh, really allowed it to open up and get it into an American. That's how Americans heard about these films because you're in Oklahoma. You're not going to see Suspiria playing probably. There may have been a museum that showed it, but it's it's probably not going to come here until a home video release and then maybe you see a critic's review. Um, And so it's it's a little give and take. Film nerds talking about it, right? Look, Fangoria is still film criticism. Yeah, right. At the end of the day, just because it's a you know a a genre film friendly place doesn't mean it's not still film criticism. Fans are film critics. Yeah, and again, sometimes fans make film criticism. It it is it becomes a nebulous kind of uh, two way permeable space. And I think you're right, Arthur. I mean, in fairness to Argento, there there is a tendency and and. Especially, I would say, in some of those uh, uh, publications, uh, to review films as products as opposed to art, and, yeah. that, and that that stuff bothers me. I yeah. really don't care for. I don't like letter grades. Yeah, uh, I, I know it makes it easier for some sites to get clicks sometimes. Yeah. Uh, letter grades and star numbers. I'm, well, that's, I mean, we're 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 in a era of film criticism driven by the tomato aggregator, right? I yeah. Mean, mm-hmm. Which is I, no I good. I've talked to so many people who say, oh, yeah, that had an 85 on le- a tomato meter. I'll go see it because that sounds great. But it, and this was a lot, took, it took me a long time to realize it's it's not grading the film as an A to F. It's 85% of critics like this movie. I'm not that saying how much they like it. 15% of critics who didn't. Yeah. And you might fall into that 15%. Yeah. And that, that took me a long time to connect. I don't think people always connect the casual yeah. audience you know goer and even something um, that is a, a you know tangled up here it's <laughs> oh chords are fun even something that is you know has a quote-unquote rotten score on rotten tomatoes th- those might not all be like this is trash much i just don't really care I, for it charlie bartlett has a, a 50 or below 50 right i mean that's a movie yeah. we I all love, love that movie right? yeah. yeah and again the people who didn't like that movie probably didn't hate it they just yeah. didn't didn't really sing sing to them and I, th- I think the other part of this is the question of you know quote unquote what is art when does a piece become art is it the inception i mean i can do a watercolor on you know in my living room but is it art there or does it become art once i've shown it to somebody else and they can admire it and engage with the piece it becomes art when you die and it's worth something there you go yes. I mean, that's the other you know posthumous you know, artwork you know we reevaluate a piece after somebody's died you know this this person wasn't anything and then oh they've died oh i've got to re-engage with these albums that are being re-released and sold in the studios that are making money and off of and i think that's why it probably like uh offends me so much that point of view because i think a big part of what we do on this show and a big part of what some of my favorite film critics do is evaluate pop filmmaking as art Right, and the people who refuse to engage with pop filmmaking as art, I think there is a a branch of film studies, a branch of film criticism that refuses to treat something like um, uh, Halloween 2018 as a piece of art. Um, that That is a piece of art. It is, because that's just kind of how filmmaking works. Now, does it exist in a commerce machine that mm. uh, churns out endless content? Yes, absolutely. But you still have to try and engage with it as a piece of art, because... Look, it is what it is. This is what we. This is what gets made. So we got to talk about it, uh, and and trying 
with open hearts and full earnestness to engage with things that are not, quote, art on this show. Uh, and then to hear somebody say, well, I don't care what anybody thinks. It just kind of bums me out a little bit, man. Yeah. It's like, it's okay if people didn't like your movie and you're allowed to have your feelings hurt, but don't say anybody who does this is trash and doesn't know what they're talking about. Like, man, that's just mean. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, the thing is, um, frankly, in terms of my own aesthetic uh, and my sort of understanding of movies I like, and I have a pretty broad aesthetic. There's a lot of things that I like. Mother of Tears is bad. And the reason why it's bad is because it's poorly written in terms of dialogue. It's poorly written Although, in terms of plotting. I will say, dialogue, a Better. step up from Suspirian Inferno. But see, that's almost the worst thing because aesthetically, I like the fact that it's sort of weird and elliptical and it doesn't make any sense and that strange paranoia that's set up when, you know, the very, very toothsome actress who is the uh, lead dance instructor is like, oh, you do your own thing. Very good. Oh, it. no one can change your mind. You know, her it, scary it, teeth are so good. Uh, oh. it, it, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Now I must go. You know, and that, 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 like, that's, that's so stupid as a line, but it works because of the sort of dreamlike paranoia. It's a little closer to reality, but it's still bad. It's like bad, uh, you know, NCIS writing when you get to your, you know, like the worst of it. And NCIS is pretty bad writing in general, but it's the worst levels of NCIS kind of writing. Like, okay, now I will tell my joke. And it, I guess you could really say she lost her head. Oh, thank you, Arthur. Thank you very much. Uh, that joke really only works halfway. Yeah, for, for the listeners at home, Arthur did, in fact, pull his glasses off for that one. David uh, Caruso rears his head. Very big fan of that. Thank you, Arthur. Um, so, you know, that kind of right. It's shot badly like bad television. It's shot like the worst, again, insert shots that you find in those police procedurals. And then it is just purely offensive. Yeah, gore is fine, and I've, I've seen gorier movies than this. But it's just sudden, shocking gore that is for the sake of gore and there's nothing else supporting it. it it is the effect without anything else that is of interest to me plus misogyny plus again this sort of very very exploitative tna bits in which you know the one of the major moments of this movie is this talisman which is basically just an old t-shirt that she wears like the scenes in all of those sort of exploitative um you know rom-com kind of movies where you see the very very hot chick wearing just the t-shirt it's only for that purpose so you put all that together plus bad performances plus bad dialogue plus bad shooting plus poor imagery plus nothing that connects itself to the rest of the trilogy it's a bad movie i don't like it and i don't have to like it and that's that's really what i want to say i think at the end of the day you have a 70 year old man who has been told at this point for two decades that he is a master in the genre and he just got hurt, and his feelings hurt. I think that's you know at the end of the day, that's what it is. I, I agree, and that's fine. He's allowed to have his feelings hurt. It's the same thing with uh, when people didn't like Gods of Egypt. Now Alex Proyas blamed everybody for his movie having a bad opening. Yeah. It was like, hey man, you didn't get uh, you didn't get your fifis hurt when uh, everybody made the Crow a cult classic, did you? When critics were talking about how badass it was that you made this goth comic book movie starring Brandon Lee, uh, you liked it. You liked critics then. Uh, look, yeah. Bad reviews can't hurt box office. It, that's the truth. But and sometimes the critics get it wrong. You look at Fight Club. They absolutely mm -hmm. do. Or you look at uh, what's this stupid Christmas movie that everybody hated when it came out? A Christmas Story? No, not the the old one with Jimmy Stewart. Oh God, oh, it's, it's a Wonderful Jimmy Life. Smith's? <laughs> Jimmy would be a much different. Film. Uh, Jimmy Smith starring in It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> is a movie a I would damn watch. Man, yeah, because of that racial context. Man, well, give me also that Jimmy movie. Smith's just fucking awesome. I love him. Yeah, he is. He's great. But you're absolutely right, Arthur. And I think this is an important point. We talked about uh, think pieces and stuff, and that that can go wrong, man. Like. 
especially like a really bad clickbaity think piece headline will just make me not want to read what you wrote. And again, editors are more responsible than that than, for that than authors. Correct. That's important. But uh, it cheapens film criticism to some extent. Uh, and, and because of this online world, I think we live in this very, everything is very knee-jerk reaction, and the tide can shift mm-hmm. in an instant. Everybody can love a film, and as soon as awards nominations come out, everybody turns on that film, yep. right? And it's, it's a weird, weird era for criticism, I think. I, I would say, just since we've spent so much time dunking on uh, Argento a little bit, I, I just want to say... That, uh, you know, you don't always have to have the definitive take on something. You're allowed to, in a piece you write or a podcast you produce, you're allowed to still wrestle with the film within Mm. talking about it. You're still, you're allowed to say, I don't know that I like this. I don't know how much I like it. I don't know why I like it. I've been wrestling with Annihilation for six months now. Same, I still man. don't know where I'm at. I, I had somebody tell me that it's bad because it's about uh, liking, uh, you know, it's it's pro-self-destruction and, uh, you know, like uh, suicidal ideation. And I'm, I honestly can't disagree with that too much, but I still think it's good. <laughs> like Representation is not endorsement. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it's anyway, I, sometimes you won't know and you don't have to have the definitive take on everything you consume. Uh, so, you know, Take take that. Think about it. Uh, I don't have the definitive take on Mother of Tears. I just know I never want to watch it again because it's unpleasant to look upon. Well, that is the definitive take. Yeah, you're well, correct. With that being said, I guess we can uh, show for trash elsewhere instead. Uh, let's, let's do it. Let's let, okay. So here we go. You have to say uh, regarding the trilogy, and you can again make caveats and exclusions, um, which I'm sure um, we all will. Um, so I go to you first, Arthur, uh, with the Mother's trilogy, show for trash, and your rationale, and then uh, your Elser instead. Uh, you're going to shelf the two films in the trilogy you can find for streaming for free, uh, and that is uh, Inferno and Suspiria. I think, the, I mean, Suspiria, its reputation speaks for itself. I mean, 40 years later, people still talk about this film um, as a classic, and I think for good reason, and it's highly influential. You look at the works of De Palma, you look at the works of Lynch, and you work at the, those those types of you know genre pieces, and it, it's, it's legacy is there. Uh, you could just trash uh, Barry, 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 three mothers outside of the cemetery and chain it down and never to be opened and exposed to this world again. And I think uh, with with Suspiria, with Inferno, you watch uh, if you really like those movies and, and you, you like what Argento's doing in those early days, you got to watch uh, Deep Red. Uh, it's it's yes. very good. Uh, it reminds me a lot of when I was watching Inferno. I was reminded quite a bit of Deep Red. So if if you're into that, especially if you're into Inferno, check out Deep Red. It's it's a great work. Um, and then also I, I I most of these pair more with Suspiria I think than anything else. Uh, but they all kind of deal with um <laughs> the uh the 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 idea of a boarding school or students out of their element, or and then they've all got kind of a European feel to them. Uh, and the first is Diabolique, yes, um, which has kind of got a little mainstream buzz with the simple favor earlier this year, which kind of name drops it several times, uh, which is really cool. Uh, I think you also watch uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock uh, yeah. as well. I think Peter Ware's sensibilities pair well. That ethereal, dreamlike state really pairs with Suspiria. And it's a lot more muted. Uh, it's very palette-wise. It's very uh, tame and very earthy compared to the the bright candy glow of uh, Suspiria. And then finally, I, I thought a lot of, especially with Inferno, I think I thought a lot of Prince of Darkness 
uh, John Carpenter's Prince yeah. of Darkness. I did too, actually, uh, and I'm su- I was I kept being surprised that I kept thinking yeah. about it. And I think it helps that the lead looks like uh, the lead from he really does uh, from Prince of Darkness. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, he does. Blonde mustachio. Uh, wow, yes, is there. Uh, and so, and then swirling green evil uh, will do you some good. So those are my else's with Suspiria and Inferno. Nice, thank you for that, Mister Arthur Gordon. Well, Dalton, what do you say? Shell for trash for the Mother's trilogy. Else or instead, go. Yeah, I. Suspiria's reputation, as Arthur said, uh, speaks for itself. It, it is as good as you've heard. Uh, it's weird and silly and fun, and you're going to laugh at times you were not expecting to laugh. Uh, but it's part of its charm, I think. I, I think the, the moments in which it feels stilted. Here's a cool thing I read about it that probably says a lot about Argento. Uh, he wanted the uh, Dance Academy to uh, be uh, all uh, adolescent children, uh, adolescent girls. Uh, he wanted to write it as uh, it was a dance academy for people under for 12 and under. And the studio was like, you're out of your fucking mind, dude. No way. And he said, all right, fine, 20 and under. But I'm not changing the dialogue. I'm going to put the doorknobs above everybody's head. Uh, which leads you to... look. Archie, I know the conversation didn't go like that, but I think that's a great way for that conversation to play out. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, <laughs> that's Look, I'm sorry. If you're He's a baby having a tantrum. Yeah. Uh, but that's what happened. He wrote yeah. the dialogue. That's why the dialogue has that stilted melodramatic feel, I found out, Dustin, is because it, he had written the characters as 12. Um, makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it uh, makes him make a little bit more Except sense. Except for honestly. the adults also sound like they're 12. Well, that's... The teachers. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, uh, it, it's a it's a great film. It, it's weird and silly and funny and gross and scary. Um, we, we didn't even talk about the bar- the barbed wire pit, which makes no sense, but is a... Why do you have a barbed wire pit hey, in your dance a, school? It's a pit for your barbed wire. Uh, it's the a non-barbed wire, barbed wire. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, exactly. But again, it, it's such a cool image that it oh, doesn't, it and it's it's an image that feels more gruesome than half of the shit that I was forced to look at in Mother of Tears, which is more explicitly gruesome. Um, so just the technique uh, and craft of Suspiria are, are really special. Uh, I I would say that while Inferno, again, we kind of I've gone back and forth as we've talked about it, which of the two I like more. I think I do like Suspiria more. Uh, I, I think the intentional unreality of Suspiria just kind of heightens the entire film, or sometimes maybe even unintentional unreality of Suspiria. I think the more grounded nature of Inferno kind of hurts it sometimes, uh, makes it a little bit sillier when uh, it doesn't mean to be. And again, I think Suspiria is silly on accident at times, but for some reason it works because I feel like uh, you know I'm sick and trying to sleep through a sickness. Uh, with Inferno, it, yeah, your mileage may vary. I do like it a lot. Uh, I really like that opening sequence of going to the bookstore, going to the basement, and the water. It's all really, really cool. Um, and I think it's also shelfable. And yeah, Mother Tears, I'm right there with Arthur. Um, you know, burn it and salt the land. Uh, so that's what I've got to say about that. What should you pair with these films? Well, first up, I am going to recommend, as Dustin already said, uh, Lords of Salem, which I think Rob Zombie is. Uh, uh, it's, uh, speaking of films that were uh, have low tomato scores, I think that's got like a 50-something as well. I, I think Lords of Salem is a really great film uh, and is operating in a way that uh, challenges our narratives about uh, witchy women and uh, what society does to them. Uh, I think that's a really, really great film that kind of engages with those ideas about who gets persecuted and why. And also it's weird and crazy and buck wild. And uh, I think there's a werewolf in there at one point. Um, 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, there's 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 uh, masturbating cardinals. It's it's crazy. That movie is buck wild, and you got to see. He it. means the clergy, not the birds. Yes, correct. Uh, I'm going to recommend Raw, which is a film we've talked a lot about on this show, especially last year because it was on uh, I think all of our top ten lists last year. Um, but I think Raw does uh, the same thing that Arthur was talking about with uh, students. I was actually thinking you were going to recommend Raw when you started uh, talking, Arthur. Um, it's also got very gross subject matter, but I think it handles it really uh, empathetically um, and effectively. Uh, so love that film. And uh, finally, uh, I'd recommend the Suspiria remake uh, because I have a feeling I'm going to love it. I've watched the trailer like eight times. But uh, I'm going to recommend Halloween 2018, which is way better than uh, I expected it to be. And uh, I-, I think it shows you what you can do um, when when you start to think about what your film says. Because I think that is a film that is reckoning with the misogyny of the slasher genre in a really interesting way. I think it could have done more, but I think that it does anything at all is pretty damn impressive. Awesome. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I also agree with my co-host. Absolutely shelf Suspiria. Absolutely shelf Inferno. And for me, again, I think Inferno works better for me because there's a little bit more narrative to it, but it does it does still sort of claim that dreamscape. And I don't I, need the narrative. You know, yeah, don't need the narrative, and that's okay. Um, the narrative doesn't actually make it better, but it just it happens it just happens to have more. Yeah, is what I would say. But the fact of the matter is, it's still pretty delirious and. And you're going, am I in Rome now? Am I back in New York now? What's going on with the sort of cameo uh, Mother of Tears that's there? Oh, I my God. Love we didn't. It. Her makeup is so good. Oh, man. It's rad. Talk um, about perfect smoky eye. Yeah, Ugh. man. In 1980, no less. Damn. Saying. Crushing it with that scary cat. Uh, and so that's all working there in, in ways, you know, that I, I really, really, really appreciate. I love the Freudian imagery of going down into the depth of the subconscious in that water scene. I like the sort of, you know, uh, you know, ambig- ambiguity of torturing cats and then being eaten by rats. I, I, I like a lot of what's going on there. There's sort of the intrigue of the uh, what's going on in that apartment complex. The strange man with the, uh, the, the speaking apparatus who seems to be on your side and then he's not. <laughs> Uh, it's it's it it's like the weird turnings of a dream, but my dreams really look less like Suspiria, and my dreams look more like Inferno. That they're they're a bit more grounded, and then just go slightly off and slightly strange. And so I I, I really do appreciate that uh, quite a bit about Inferno. So those uh, Mother of Tears never happened. It doesn't exist. Wipe your brains. It does not. And if you do find the film, what you should do is jettison it into space, shoot it with a laser gun, and then make sure that the uh, refuse goes directly into the heart of the sun. Do not watch that movie. I cannot. We cannot more strongly recommend you skip this film. It's bad. We're, um, we're not like doing a bit where we're trying to trick you into watching it. Just don't do it. It's a waste of uh, 100 minutes. And rather than an else, just adding to the shelf then, as, as Dalton has already pointed out, Lords of Salem is the third part of the trilogy, and that's a, a better way of looking. Now, what are my recommendations? Uh, let's talk about schools and school children and horror and artsy stuff. And let's say that you like Suspiria, you like Inferno like we do, and you want to get into that artsy stuff. You want to move into that more thoughtful kind of, more experimental kind of cinema. And I got it for you in stages. First of all, let's just go hard into 
into dance school and let's watch Black Swan. That's a great way to sort of, and again, this sort of fractured psychology that is the narrative and the aesthetic of that film. Uh, and it may be a bit of a palate cleanser for what you've experienced in Suspiria and in Inferno. Then let's move into just the garish and the, the glowy and also school children in Japan visiting a witch. And I'm talking about 1977's Hasu, Hasu. Or, or House. Uh, great, great sort of Scooby-Doo meets Rob Zombie kind of experience. And it is a load of fun. Lastly, let's go hard into experimental. Let's go hard into art film. Let's go hard into the abstract. And let's look at the Quay Brothers feature film uh, Institute Benjamada, which is about a servant school that is also rife with weird sexual tensions uh, and also with just uh, this very, very intricately designed uh, bit of artwork. I think uh, most schools are rife with weird sexual tension. That's probably true. Um, there's a fanfic of uh, Harry Potter, and I'm sure. Uh, nonetheless, uh, take a look at those three if you are really wanting to go down this line from Suspiria into, again, more of what you might call art house cinema. Well, listener, that's it. A super-sized, super-crunchy, super-gross episode for you to close out. Salwin, uh, thank you for tuning in to Shocktober 7. It has been uh, a, f- a blast to record. I hope it's been as fun to listen to. Uh, next month, we're moving out of Dustin's favorite genre and into my favorite genre. That's right. We're doing an action movie marathon. Uh, we're going to focus on the 1990s, the year of my birth, or the decade of my birth, uh, because I am the baby of, <laughs> of this uh, podcast. Yes, you are. Arthur, uh, wh- what are we going to open uh, this can of worms with? Oh, we're going back to our roots, and I think we're going to kick it all off with uh, a little bit of Nick Cage, a little yeah. bit of John Travolta, a little bit of uh, identity switching when we watch... Do you think they'll cut the faces off? Dustin, I can confirm they cut the faces off. Okay. Is there a slow motion shot of pigeons? Uh, it's a John Woo movie, isn't it, brother? <laughs> Hell yeah, there's some pigeons. So, uh, yeah, pigeons or doves, I guess doves, right? Doves are just pretty pigeons. <laughs> the title of my memoir. And so we're getting into uh, face-off and action cinema, which is going to be a great time because it's all about the conversation. There are movies we love. There are movies we hate. There are movies that are good. There are movies that are bad. There are movies that are high art. There are movies that are just good trash. But the conversation is what matters, and we're going to keep watching, or rather you're going to keep watching, and we're going to keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network. For all things Good Trash, head on over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro music is made by friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers, and our outro music is Mother by Danzig. Mother, tell your children not to walk my way. Tell your children not to hear my words, what they mean, what they say. Mother. Mother, can you keep them in the dark for life? Can you hide them?